Well, good morning. My name is Ryan, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as college and online pastor here at Northway, and I'm really excited to be here with you this morning to study God's Word and to wrap up our two-week mini-series titled Seated. So when my wife Sarah and I got married, shortly after, we got a golden retriever named Maggie. Um, This is Maggie. Maggie is about three years old now, or a little over three years old, and she's very sweet. She loves people, loves other dogs. She loves to play. And the thing about Maggie, which is true, which I'm sure is true about any of you who have pets, is oftentimes her posture reflects her intention. And so here's what I mean. When you look at Maggie here, it's very clear what her intention is. This is from a few years ago. She's in an open field, and she's saying, I just want to play nonstop. I'm in a happy place. I hope this never ends. We were trying to take pictures this day, but she was having none of it, and so this is what we have. But she is very clearly wanting to play. In this picture, we see her posture as well, where her legs and paws are underneath her. And so here's what she's saying. She's saying, I want to play, but you've just told me to sit down and and lay down, and I don't want to lay down. But I'm going to listen to you, and so I'm going to kind of lay down. But as soon as you look away, or as soon as you tell me I can get up, I'm going to bolt up off the ground because I've got all my paws underneath me so I can play because I really want to play. This next picture, we see where her posture, her legs are still underneath her in the back, but her front legs have said, oh, I'm giving up hope a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to get to actually play. And so she's saying, I'm going to lay out a little bit and maybe even doze and take a nap but my hind legs are still underneath me. So if you want to play, you just let me know and I will jump up and I am ready to go. This final one is what we call Maggie's bear rug. And so as you can tell, she is all the way sprawled out. It looks like she has no joints or bones in her. And what she is doing here, she is fully committing to the nap. She is saying there is zero chance of playing. And so I'm just going to sprawl out and I'm going to take a nap because I have no hope to play here. Now, why do I tell you this? Because last week we looked at the posture of Jesus and how he has ascended into heaven and that he being our high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, is now seated at the right hand of God. And this morning what I want us to do is look at our response, our posture in response to Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Look at the posture of our hearts and our lives because Jesus is seated. And so that's where we're going this morning. Now, this week's going to look a little bit different than last week. Last week, we looked at the chapter 10 of Hebrews, and we walked through it verse by verse, and we, we looked at the overall big idea, the author's intent of this chapter. But this week, we're going to jump around to three different passages of Scripture. And in these three passages of Scripture, we're looking at snapshots from the life of a woman named Mary. And in these snapshots, we're going to see a repeated posture of Mary. And the repeated posture is that she's seated at the feet of Jesus. And so instead of looking at each passage and looking at the big idea for each one, we're going to see this theme that's consistent. See, when you, when you read Scripture and you see themes that are repeated, what they oftentimes do is they teach us biblical principles that we can take with us. And so that's my hope this morning is that as we look at these three snapshots and we look at this repeated theme, that we will see a biblical principle that is good for our lives as well. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. Or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can open up to Luke chapter 10. And we've got the message map there as well. 
And it's going to be on the screens here. And our big idea, what we're going to try to see in these three snapshots, is that we must find ourselves seated at the feet of Jesus with our lives in complete submission to him. That's the big idea we'll see in these three snapshots. So starting off just reading in verses 38 through 42, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And when she, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we're introduced to these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus goes into Martha's home, and we find Mary, for the first time we see her, seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings, just hanging on to every word that he says, soaking it all in. And then we see Martha. And Martha, being the host, she is trying to get everything ready. She's trying to be the, the best host she can be. She is busy and distracted with much serving. She's a busybody. She's trying to get everything tip-top shape, being the best host that she can be. And don't we all know a Martha? We know the, the person who, when they have someone over to their home, they're going to deep clean everything. I mean, from head to toe, everything's got to be perfect because they got to be the best host that they can be. And in reality, we need Marthas in this world because if the world was full of Marys, then nothing would get done. And so thank, thank goodness we have Marthas. But here she's, she's busy cleaning, she's serving, she's getting everything ready, making sure it's all perfect. And she gets frustrated. She looks over at her sister who's sitting there doing nothing, and she's like, what in the world? Why, why won't she help me? And so she goes frustrated, probably how my parents felt when I used to sit down while they were working and cleaning, and I was sitting there being lazy. So she gets frustrated, and she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. And we kind of expect Jesus to kind of come to her defense and say, yeah, go help your sister. We even see Jesus at a time in Scripture where he walks into this Pharisee's house, and he criticizes the Pharisee for not hosting him well. And so this is what we expect here, but instead he looks at Martha. And he says, Martha, Martha. Now, when you see repetition like that, there's intent. He, it's a very pointed statement at Martha. And he says, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. The good portion, that's a reference to uh, Old Testament passages where we see in the book of Psalms where the good portion is relationship with God. That God is our portion forevermore. And so it says, the key word here that we need to see is that she is distracted with much serving. That the thing, one thing is necessary, the main thing she has had her attention drawn away from. She's unable to concentrate on the thing that is important, which is the good portion, relationship with God. Because she's so busy with all these other details. She misses the relationship with Jesus here. And so often we are like Martha where life gets very busy and we are working and we're, we're doing school and we're trying to get kids ready and we're taking kids to practices and sports and all these extracurriculars and the busyness of life takes over and we, like Martha, neglect the good portion, which is relationship with God. 
And maybe even the busyness is from good things, things that we're called to do. It's, it's things like serving on Sunday mornings and, and being a host of a home team and doing missions and, and volunteering, things that are good and we're called to do. But what happens is we end up losing focus of the good portion, which is relationship with God. We neglect time in God's word. We neglect time uh, reading and meditating on the word of God. We, we neglect the relationship with God, because we're so busy and we're distracted with all these different things, we miss the good portion. But here, we should take the example of Mary and take the posture of Mary. Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus. What that's saying is, Jesus, I see you as the ultimate authority, that your words have value that I'm going to trust in your word and I'm going to sit here and soak it all up because I know that they're important. She is in full submission and in awe of who he is. And that should be our heart's posture as well. That yes, we do the things of life, the working and school and, and sports, all those things, they're not bad things. But if they distract from the good portion, then we've missed the point. We should find ourselves submitted to the word of God reading it regularly, studying it, meditating on it, and then obeying it. We submit our lives to Jesus as our supreme authority. And we, we have this good portion, this relationship with God. So snapshot one, we see Mary seated at the feet of Jesus, submitting to his full authority. So moving on to the next snapshot, which is in John chapter 11. We're reading the first six verses here. John chapter 11, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. I want you to remember that verse. We're going to come back to it later. So the sisters went, sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So we, we're introduced to Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus. And what we learn is that Jesus has a special relationship with his family. He loves them deeply and they love him. They love him and they trust him. They trust and see that he has power and authority. And so when Lazarus gets sick, they send to him. They send to the one who loves them and who has the power to do something about this sickness. But it says that Jesus stayed two days later. And what we'll learn is that in this time, Lazarus dies. Now, Jesus said that this, uh, this illness doesn't lead to death, but what he was foreshadowing and looking forward to was he was actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And later on, what we find is in these two days while he waited, though, Lazarus dies. He's telling his disciples, he says, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. We have to go get him. And they're like, well, if he's sleeping, he'll just wake up. And then finally, Jesus had to plainly tell him, he's like, no, 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 Lazarus has died. And so Jesus goes to this family. So picking up in verse 17, it says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So we see as Jesus, when he, he comes onto the scene, when he comes to this village, he arrives into a storm of emotions. That after, uh, in Jewish tradition, after someone died, they would go into a time of mourning where friends and family would gather around. They would even hire professional mourners at times to come and to mourn with them. And so when he arrives, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, and they're still in this time, this period of mourning. And it's a storm of emotions. But it says that Martha hears that he's there, and she rushes out to meet him, rushes out to see him. But we find Mary once again seated. But this time she's not seated at the feet of Jesus. She's seated far off from him. Because all of the things that had just happened in her life, where her brother, the one who she loves, just got sick. And so she reached out to someone who she thought loved her, someone who had the power to do something about her brother's sickness, but he didn't come. And then Lazarus, her brother, dies. And so there she is, just broken and in mourning, in pain and in sorrow. And she's confused and she's frustrated. And it's brought her to her knees in this time of grieving. And so many of us have been there before, where you've gotten that call and it just made your heart sink to your stomach and made your knees weak. You've gotten that diagnosis that you never thought that you would get. You've attended the funeral that you should have never had to attend. And for some of you, you don't have to think back and reflect on a time or try to imagine what she's feeling because this is where you are right now. You are walking in a dark time. You are broken and you are in grieving and you are in mourning. You're confused and you're frustrated. And it's just brought you to your knees, overcome with emotion. This is the scene here that Jesus steps onto. So Martha, she goes out to Jesus. She has a conversation with Jesus. And in this conversation, she's actually going to make this astounding proclamation that Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. And then that's where we pick up in verse 28. It says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So he finishes his conversation with Martha, and she goes back to Mary and says, hey, the teacher's calling you. He's calling for you. And so she gets up and she runs quickly to him. And those who were there with her mourning followed her out, thinking she was just going to mourn at the tomb. So she went, they went to go with her. And it says that when she sees Jesus, that the clouds just parted. Rays of sun fell on her face. Birds started chirping. Her tears immediately dried up. And then this joyous song played in the background. No, it doesn't say that. When she saw Jesus, she fell at his feet, overcome with emotion. She fell at his feet in her grieving, in her mourning. In her confusion and frustration, she fell at his feet. She's saying, 
Jesus, I'm still in pain. I'm still hurting. I still don't understand why this is happening, but this is where I need to be. And she, she makes the statement that's on everyone's mind. It's the statement that Martha makes and even people after her are going to say is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, everything's not fixed. Everything's not just immediately going away. Everything's not all better. She's still hurting. She's still confused. And the people even who are with her are going to say, wait a minute, isn't this the guy who gave sight to the blind? Couldn't he have done something about this? And so in her pain, in her confusion, she falls at his feet once again. And that should be the posture of our hearts as well. See, when we walk through dark times, the the tendency, the, the, it is easy for us to fall to our knees far from God, to withdraw and pull away in our confusion. But here we see the example to follow of Mary running to him and falling at his feet with all of her emotions, with her questions, with her pain, with her frustrations, and saying, I don't get it all, Lord, but I know this is where I need to be. Why? Because Jesus loves her. And has a plan for her. We see in these verses immediately following this that Jesus actually weeps in this moment. That he looks on and sees the brokenness. And and some scholars will say he he might have wept because he was frustrated with sin and frustrated with the effects that sin has had because he knows that's not how God intended it. But then also in in the verses here it says, see how he loved him after he weeps. And so he weeps because he has compassion for this family. He loves them deeply. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows it's going to be okay. But in this moment, even with the plan, he is not distant from their pain. He cares deeply for them, and he loves them, and it moves him to tears. He loves her deeply, and he has a plan for her. And that is why we should fall at the feet of Jesus, because he loves us, and he has a plan for us. We see his plan in verses 5 through 6 where he says he loves this family. And so when he heard about Lazarus dying, he stayed two days. We're like, what? That doesn't make sense. We expected to say he loves this family. And so when he heard about Lazarus uh, being sick, he hurried to them to console them and to heal them. We know he has the power and the authority to do it. They believed he had the power and the authority to do it. It wasn't an issue of faith here. I mean, Jesus didn't even have to go to heal him. Earlier in the Gospel of John, when a man comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, will you heal my son? Jesus doesn't even go. He just declares him healed from a distance. And the boy is miraculously healed. He has the power to do it. And so it says he loved them, so he stayed. He loved them, so he allowed Lazarus to die. He's got a plan. He tells us in verse 4, the reason for it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God would be glorified through it. The reason for it is, so when he stepped onto that scene, and Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, there was no question of whether he was dead or not. There's no one who's going to say, oh, well, maybe he just fell asleep, or he was in a coma, maybe we just missed it. No, he was so dead that when Jesus said, hey, roll the stone away, Martha says, whoa, 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 Jesus, it's going to stink. Don't do that. He's been in there for four days. It's going to stink. See, when he rolled the tomb, though, And he called Lazarus out and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out of that tomb. There was no doubt what had just happened. There was no doubt that Jesus had the authority over death and life itself. 
there was no doubt that Jesus indeed was the Christ, the Son of God who had come into the world to free the world for sin. And it said that many believed that day. See, he had a plan. He had a plan for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus and for all who were attending that day. And Christian, hear me say this. He has a plan for you as well. That even in your darkest moments, even when you're in pain and you're hurting and you're grieving, even when you're confused and you don't understand why it's happened, Jesus loves you and he has a plan for you. And he promises you, Christian, that that he is working good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that even though we don't understand the purpose, there is purpose and he is sovereign over the moment. And so because he loves us, And because he has a plan for us in our grieving, in our pain, in our confusion and frustration, we can fall at his feet saying, Lord, I don't get it and this hurts, but Lord, I know you love me and I know there's a purpose and a plan in this. And so I trust you with that. And so when the wind and waves of life come and you are brought to your knees in pain and sorrow, you're brought to your knees in grief and confusion and frustration, Where will your knees hit the ground? Will they hit the ground far from God? Or will they hit the ground at the feet of Jesus? Saying, Jesus, I don't get it, but I trust you. And I know you love me. And I know you've got a plan and you're sovereign even over this. That was the response and the posture of Mary. So in snapshot two, here we see her posture once again is at the feet of Jesus. So moving on to our third and final snapshot. It's in John chapter 12, the very next chapter. In the first eight verses, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus goes to the town of Bethany, the week before the Passover, the week before the time where he would come into Jerusalem as it was prophesied, and he would lay down his life on the cross. The week before this takes place, he goes to Bethany, the place where Lazarus and his sisters were. And so they figured, you know, since he raised Lazarus from the dead, the least we can do is throw him a party. The least we can do is have him over for dinner. And so they have him over, and we see Jesus reclining at the table with everyone else. Martha serving, once again, shocker there. And then Mary comes, and once again, she's at the feet of Jesus. She takes this expensive oil, she pours it on him, anointing him with it, lets down her hair, and cleans his dirty feet. Now, a few things to know about this. The the oil was very expensive. It says it was about 300 denarii is what it could have been sold for. A denarii was about a day's wage. And if you do a quick Google search and look at the average day wage for making, it's about $180. And so if you multiply that out, it's about $54,000 is how expensive this thing is. So you didn't just use this casually, right? This was used with intention for very special occasions. 
And so she takes this very valuable and expensive perfume, this ointment, and she pours it on him, and she anoints him with it. And the other thing you need to know is women's hair back in this time was very cherished, very valuable. They didn't just let it down in public regularly. It was very rare for a woman to have her hair down. Usually that was just reserved for her husband. But here we see her letting down the most cherished and precious part of who she is and using it to clean Jesus' dirty feet. What's she saying with this? She's saying, Jesus, all that I am and all that I have to give, it's yours. There's nothing off limits. The most valuable and precious things that I have, they're here and they're yours. Lord, you tell me what to do and I will do it. I am all yours. There's nothing I am holding back. Nothing is off limits to my service to you because you are worthy of it all, Jesus. It says Judas, he pipes in. He said, couldn't we have sold this to the poor? And and yes, Jesus wants us to, to take care of the poor um, that, that's what something he commands us to do, but we see Judas's heart was not in the right place. Judas speaks from a place of selfishness. And, and Jesus, he comes to Mary's defense once again. He rebukes him and says, hey, let her keep this for my burial. Let her keep this. See, what he's doing is he's foreshadowing what's coming up this coming week. That when, in Jewish tradition, when they would place the body in the tomb, they would anoint it with oils and perfumes. And so he's foreshadowing what's coming up. He says that the poor you'll always have with you, but I'm only here for a short time. And here's the thing. We are so often like Judas, where we are selfish. We are about exalting and glorifying ourselves. We want others to look at us and say, look how good he is. Look how great she is. Look how kind he or she is. It's all about us. We, we do things for our own glory. And even sometimes we do things built behind pious walls where we're doing the things, again, that we're called to do, serving in the church, taking care of the poor, doing things that God has called us to do, but we do them from places of selfish ambitions and selfish motives so that when others see us, they say, wow, look at how holy he is. Look at how great and kind she is. Or not necessarily for others to pat ourselves on the back, but so that we could pat ourselves on the back, saying, man, I feel good. I'm doing a good job here. It's all from selfishness. And in this selfishness, so often we can lay certain things at the feet of Jesus, saying, hey, this is yours, God. Use it how you will. But then we keep others behind our backs. We say, Jesus, here's Sunday mornings. Take my Sunday mornings. But my Saturday nights, can you just lay off that a little bit? Or Jesus, we say, you can have an hour and a half at home teams for me. That's great. Take that hour and a half. But my Sunday mornings, God, mm, those are kind of precious and valuable to me. Can you, just, can you just not let me, can you not take that? Or Jesus, we, we say you can have some of my money, but, but God, don't touch the rest of my week. <laughs> we say, Jesus, you can have my passion and my zeal for the truth. I will fight for your truth. I will, I will make sure all know your truth. But love my enemies? I don't know. Be, be compassionate and gracious, gracious to others, those who have been stamped with your image? I don't know. See, in selfishness, we, we're fine with laying certain things at the feet of Jesus, but other things we hold back. But we must take the posture of Mary. Come to the feet of Jesus saying, Jesus, all that I am, all that I have, it's yours. 
all of my resources, my time, they were gifts from you anyways. Leverage them for your kingdom. My family, my job, everything, Jesus. You just tell me which way to run and I will run. I am all yours. Nothing is off limits from your service, Lord. We must take the posture of Mary. We must take the whole posture of saying our entire lives is seated at your feet. Lord, we are submitting to your word and your authority. Lord, that even when we don't get it and we don't understand, we are trusting that you love us and have a plan for us. And Lord, everything that we have, it is yours. And I just love what these passages convey about Jesus, what they point to about Jesus. That in snapshot one, we see that Jesus is the supreme authority, that his word is the very word of God, that he is the embodiment of God's word, who was there in the beginning, the agent of creation, the one for, for all things and through all things he created, and all things are held together in him. That, that he is the one who loves us and has a plan for us, and what he proclaims in snapshot two is that he is the resurrection and the life. And then what snapshot three points to is what he would do that week on the cross. That Jesus, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, the unblemished lamb of God, and then he offered himself up as sacrifice for the sins of the world. That he goes to the cross, and on the cross he cries out, it is finished, and he dies. And they take his body, they put it in a tomb, and they roll a stone in front of the tomb. But just like he commanded the stone be rolled away and Lazarus to walk out, God rolled away that stone and brought him to life. He resurrected him from the dead, and he appeared to many witnesses, and then he ascended into heaven, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because he defeated sin, and he defeated Seth, death itself. And he promises us in John 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, 25 through 27, when he's talking to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, in me, if you will believe in me and trust in me, believe in who I am and what I did on the cross and believe that God raised me from the dead, fulfilling the promise that he is the resurrection and the life, then those who trust in him will have their sins forgiven, their sins washed away, that they will go from dead in their sins to alive in Christ, and they will dwell with him for all eternity, that though they might die, they will live with him forever. And the natural response of those who have put their trust in Jesus, trusting him as the resurrection and the life, the natural response is the posture of Mary, to fall at the feet of Jesus, fall at his feet in complete submission to him, saying all that I am and all that I have to give, nothing is off limits to you. But so often as Christians, we, we tend to forget this. We tend to draw back. We tend to be like Martha and get busy and distracted and neglect the good portion, which is relationship with God. We neglect spending time in his word and studying it and obeying it. We neglect submitting our lives to his authority. There are times where in our grief, in our pain, in our mourning, we fall to our knees, but we fall to our knees far off from Jesus. When like instead, we should be like Mary and fall at his feet. 
There are times where we like to pick and choose what we lay at his feet, where we give him certain things, but other things we hold to ourselves and we don't submit to his authority. But we should take the route and the posture of Mary and lay all that we are at his feet. Saying, Jesus, nothing is off limits to you. My life is in complete service of you because you are worthy of that. All that I am and all that I have to give is yours, God. And when you do that, when you live a life in this way, it changes not just your life, but it changes the lives of others. What we see in John 11, 45, says that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. Did you see that? See, the Jews who were there with Mary, who were there mourning with her, because she decided to get up and to fall at the feet of Jesus and to mourn there, they got up and they followed her. And because they got up and they followed her, and because she was in proximity to Jesus, they witnessed a miracle that changed their lives and changed their eternity. And it started with Mary falling at the feet of Jesus. Christian, if you spend your life consistently falling at the feet of Jesus, others will see it. The light of God will reflect off of you, and their lives could be changed for eternity. We see in John 11, too, that verse I, I told you to, to mark down and remember. It says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. See, he says this because his original audience who's reading this, they read this and they're like, well, there's a hundred Marys. Which Mary is this again? And what he's saying is like, oh, you know Mary, the one who anointed the feet of Jesus. That had become what people knew her by. That was her hallmark. They knew her because she anointed Jesus' feet. They're like, oh, I remember Mary. She fell at his feet and the fragrance just filled the room. Christian, what will be, you be known by? What will be your hallmark? Will be someone who's a good business person or successful or funny or, or athletic? Or will it be someone who has lived a life marked by serving Jesus? saying nothing is off limits, and a life that when others look, they're like, they were just an ordinary person, but there was something extraordinary about them, that there's something special about them and the God that they served. What will be your hallmark in this life? And then lastly, I just want to close by speaking to the unbeliever, that those of you who are here who you, you haven't put your full faith and trust in Jesus, that you are still far off from God, Today, this morning, you can have your sins forgiven. Today, you can go from death to life. Today, you can have your life and your eternity changed forever. If you would just be aware and know the depth of your sin, know that your sin was against a holy and almighty God, that you have rebelled and rejected your creator God, and that sin has rendered you dead, that, that you are far from him and that there's nothing in of your own strength that you can do about it. If you'll know the depth of your sin and that it shaped your life and your eternity and you'll fall at the feet of Jesus and believe in him and trust in him. Believe that, that he lived the perfect life, that he died on the cross and that God raised him from the dead. If you will believe that and trust that it was done for you, then your sins will be forgiven. That though you are dead, you will be made alive. Though you are far from God and his enemy, you will be called child of God. And it will change your life and it will change your eternity. I want to close by reading these words to you, unbeliever. The words of Jesus that we read earlier. 
When he's speaking to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? My hope and my prayer is that you would.